following sermon, entitled Looking to the Last Adam as Those Fallen in Adam, was preached on the morning of July 24th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, due to the length of the chapter, we will not read the whole of it. We will read two sections from it. First, verses 12 through 16, 12 through 26, and then verses 35 through 15. 1 Corinthians 15, first beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, and the previous 11 verses were setting forth some of the proof of his resurrection. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at His coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And now let's skip to verse 35 and read through verse 15. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain, it may chance, of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory." so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. 
it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And now he's going to explain why there is this difference, a natural body and a spiritual body, by pointing us to two different men. Verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither corruption inherit incorruption. As far we read God's Word, it's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good, and after His own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God His Creator, heartily love Him, and live with Him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise Him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. Hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Lord's Day 1 taught us that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. To put it negatively, our comfort is that we do not, we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. But neither do we belong to another mere man. And specifically this morning, we want to point out, neither do we belong to Adam. Instead, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's comforting for us because if we did belong to Adam, if we were His responsibility, there would be nothing for us but death. Because by the sin of Adam, death entered into the world and death passed upon all men in that all have sinned in Adam. So if we were still in Adam and that's all you could say about us, we would have no comfort. We would be of all men most miserable. But the good news of the Gospel is that according to His decree of election, God has joined us to a new head. 
so that though we do have Adam as our first parent, though we have received our natures from Him, our head is now Jesus Christ. We, we belong to Him. We are in Jesus Christ. And that's good news exactly because in Jesus Christ is found life. Life with God. Eternal life. A, a resurrection life that's applied to our soul already now and to our body when Christ comes again. And all of this is to say that as a people, we do not look back to Adam, our first parent, for our salvation, for our help. Instead, we look to the last Adam, our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's that truth that we want to focus on this morning as we consider Lord's Day theme. Our theme will be looking to the last Adam as those fallen in Adam. A bit cumbersome, longer than normal, but it captures the point. Looking to the last Adam as those fallen in Adam first. We'll look at the first Adam. Second, the fall of Adam. And third, the last Adam. Lord's Day 6 begins with the first Adam. With the creation of man. And specifically, question and answer 6 that is, Lord's Day 3, question and answer 6, teaches us both why God created man as well as how He created him. We want to look at each of those in turn. First, why did God even bother creating man? And the explanation for that is found in the second half of question and answer 6 where we read that God created man that He might rightly know God, His Creator, heartily love Him and live with Him in eternal happiness to glorify and to praise Him. And if we wanted to summarize all of that, we could say God's purpose, His reason for creating man is His own glory. For the reality is that this is God's purpose, His goal with everything that He does. As we read in Romans 11, verse 36, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Because our God is the all-glorious One, He is worthy of all praise and honor. And therefore, in creating man, He made man so that man's chief purpose, his end, is to glorify his God. As we read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Why did God create man? So that we might praise Him. So that God might have a creature that gives conscious, willing, active praise to His Creator. It's a part of the reason why God created man. For His own glory. But there's more that we can add. There's a second thing. Namely, that God created man in order to bring man into His own covenantal life and into His own fellowship. And we say that in light of the language here in the Lord's Day when it speaks of us living with Him in eternal happiness. For you see, our God is a triune God, is a covenantal being that is the three persons are all bonded together in a bond of perfect love. And within that bond, they enjoy perfect fellowship and communion with each other. And a part of God's 
purpose in creating man is to bring someone into that blessed life to share His own happiness, to bring us into His fellowship. So God created man so he might enjoy God. Those are the two purposes. And if you are at all familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you'll recognize that really we've just summarized question and answer one. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? The answer, that he might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's God's purpose for man. So that's why God created man. Which brings us to how then did God create him? And when we look at the how God created him, we need to see that God built man in such a way as to be able to fulfill His purpose to serve the goal that God intended for man. For on the one hand, God created man good. That is, in His own image. That's the language of the catechism when it explains that God, when it says very simply, God created man good and after His own image. It's telling us how God created man and it's clearly drawing from the language of Scripture. Genesis 1, verse 27, which teaches us that God made us in His image. And that we've been made in His image means that there's a, a certain creaturely reflection of some of God's attributes that were found in man at least as He was created. To use an earthly illustration, sometimes we say about a son that he is the spitting image of his father. What do we mean that he's the image of his father? There's a certain reflection of his father in him. There's certain characteristics that we find in both. There are mannerisms that we see in the Son that are clearly coming from the Father. So too, in a creaturely way, did God make man in His own image. He created man in such a way that man now reflects some of His own attributes. We resemble Him from a certain point of view. And now we can become more specific in that regard. For the reformed confessions on the basis of scripture that te- on the basis of scripture teach us that that image consists of God's righteousness, his holiness, and his knowledge. It comes out in the catechism when it says, But God created man good after his own image. What do you mean? This in true righteousness and holiness, and then it adds that he might rightly know God. So knowledge is implied. And this is the teaching of all of our confessions. We have the same thing in the Canons of Dort, the third and fourth heads. Article 1 teaches us this. Man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his Creator and of spiritual things. His heart and his will were upright, that is righteous, and all of his affections were Pure and the whole man was holy. Righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. And the reason the confessions consistently point to those three things is on the basis of Scripture. For in the New Testament, we find different passages that tell us what it is to be recreated in the image of God. To have that image restored. And they tell us that to be recreated is to have 
to be given knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Well, if that's what it means to be recreated in that image, that means that's what the image itself consists of. So God created man in His own image in righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. And now tie that back to the why. Why did God create man for His own glory? How did God create man? He created him good. He created him in His own image. That is, He was equipping man. He was endowing him with the gifts that man needed in order to fulfill His purpose. His chief end is to glorify God. And God, as a good engineer, as it were, a good master craftsman, designed man and built man in such a way that He could serve in His intended capacity. So that's a part of how God created man. He created him good in His own image. There's a second part to the how. And that's the truth that God created man in covenant with Himself. And now that is not explicitly mentioned here in question and answer 6 or in Lord's Day 3, but it is the truth of Scripture. For when we go back to the opening pages of the Bible, we find that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool part of the day in the garden. It's very clear that God spoke to Adam and Eve. And Luke 3 speaks of Adam as the the Son of God. And when you put all that together, God walking with His people, talking with His people, these people being His sons and daughters, what is being described, what's clearly in view is the truth that God had established His covenant with Adam. So that in the very beginning already, God had revealed that to Adam and brought him into that life of the covenant. And now it's true, God's covenant with Adam before the fall had a slightly different character. The main truth is God created him in covenant. Now it's worth noting one aspect of the different character of that pre-fall covenant with Adam. Namely, that Adam was the head of that covenant. Because you see, Adam was created as the head of the entire human race. He was our representative from a legal point of view as well as our head from an organic or a natural point of view. And thus, when God created His covenant with Adam, He was creating His covenant with all those who are in Adam, all those whom He represented, all of Adam's physical descendants. We'll see the significance of that later on in the sermon. But for now, we know God created man in covenant. And again, the how of His creation corresponds to the why. Because a part of the why of creating man is that we might be brought into His own life of covenantal fellowship. That we might enjoy Him. And so God created man in covenant with Him and created Him in such a way that He could actually enjoy that covenantal life with His God. So that very simply is the theology that is explained in question and answer 6. It sets before us the why and the how of the creation of the first Adam. From this, there are three points of application that are worth drawing. First, 
when we look at how God created all things, but especially man, we see that in that He reveals His goodness. His goodness. For what do we read again and again and again as we scan through the verses of Genesis chapter 1? Repeatedly we read, and God saw that it was good. And the Catechism rightly applies that to man, the climax of the creation, when it says that God created man good. For really, it was only after God had created man on the sixth day that God then stepped back and He he added an adjective. He said, it's all very good. And what we see in this is God's own goodness. And the fact that God communicates that goodness. So that when God created this world, the world had His goodness stamped onto it, as it were. So good is our God that if He's going to make anything, it's going to have His goodness imprinted onto it. So that when we look even at the created world around us, and especially when we look at man as he was first created, it it testifies, it's a, a revelation of the goodness of our God. And if God is so good that anything He creates is going to have His goodness stamped upon it, communicated to it, is He not worthy of praise? Will you not glorify such a good God? So first, when we look at the creation of the first Adam, we see the goodness of God. Second, we learn from this that God is not to blame for man's sin and misery. And that's really the main point of question and answer 6. Because the previous Lord's Day taught us that we are sinners. Corrupt sinners. Because the previous Lord's Day taught us the law of our God. And when we looked at that law which tells us love God and love the neighbor, we saw by nature I hate God and I hate the neighbor. I'm a sinner. I'm corrupt. I'm depraved. And the question becomes, well, where did that come from? And that's the really the question being asked in Question six, only with a slight twist in that it's not just an objective question, where does this depravity come from? But it asks, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? And the idea is, is God the one to blame? There's really two options. It's either God or man. Who's at fault here? And if it's God, well, that means we're off the hook. That means I'm not responsible. I'm not accountable for my sin, my depravity. So did God program man in such a way that it's inbuilt to him that he's going to sin? The answer is no. An emphatic no. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. God created man good. And therefore, He is not the author of sin. He is not responsible for our depravity. He is not to blame
And we need to be reminded of that again and again and again. That general principle. God is not to blame. Because ever since the very beginning, man has always been trying to blame God. We see that in Adam. When God confronts him for his sin, what does Adam say? It was the woman you gave me. And then when God confronts Eve, what does Eve say? It was the serpent who beguiled me. And implied in both of those responses is you put that woman in my life. You put that serpent there. Man is always trying to blame God. And so it is with us. God, it's that spouse You gave me. His or her character. His or her faults and weaknesses. That's why I sinned. God, it was the circumstances of my life. The trial is too great right now. The temptations are far too many. Who could possibly withstand such temptations and such hardships? God, it's Your fault because You made me this way. I was born with these specific sinful inclinations, these propensities to particular sins. I could not help that. I've always had this and You made me, so it's Your fault. The answer of Scripture is that God is not to blame. As we read in James 1, verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. God is not to blame. We are. That secondly is what we see. Third and finally, by way of application of the truth of how God created man and why, we see in this a revelation of the greatness of man's sin and misery. And we see the greatness of our sin and misery when we recognize the original excellence that was given to man. It's when we see the privileged position that God gave to man in the beginning that we then come to understand what was lost. How far man fell. And that helps us to know the depths of our sin and misery. And remember, if we are going to live and die happily, we need to know how great is our sin and our misery. Not because that knowledge in and of itself is what gives us comfort and enables us to live and die happily, but because that knowledge only magnifies the greatness of our deliverance. So that we are truly impressed with the wonder of our salvation. So that salvation's joy is imparted to us as we sang earlier. And that becomes all the more so when we recognize, as we'll see at the very end of the third point, that salvation is more than just being brought back to what Adam had being given something even greater, even something more wonderful. So we've looked at the first Adam. But now as a congregation, we're still left with the question, who is to blame then? Who is at fault? Where then did this depravity and this corruption come from? That brings us to 
Question and answer seven and the fall of Adam. Question seven asks, whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? And the answer, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise, hence our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Depravity came from the disobedience of the first Adam. And we're familiar with that sin. God told Adam very clearly, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. But Adam, under the instigation of the devil, ignoring God's Word and God's warning, took that fruit willfully of his own accord and ate it. And thereby plunged himself and the whole human race whom he represented into sin. We're familiar with the sin. But perhaps at times we wonder, is eating a piece of fruit really that bad? Is this really such a a heinous sin that the whole human race is going to be punished for it? Yes. Because there's more to it, to this sin. There's all sorts of attendant sins that are a part of the, the sin that we see on the surface. Because what we see on the surface is by itself bad enough in that it's an act of deliberate, willful disobedience. God had told him, do not eat of this tree. And yet Adam ate. And it comes out all the more strongly when God comes to him and asks him, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? This is willful disobedience. But there's more to it. Because a part of the sin is the sin of pride. The sin of ambition. God had made Adam the head of the human race. He had set him up as king over the whole creation, giving him dominion, but Adam wanted more. He wanted to be like God. There's pride. There's sinful ambition here. There's unbelief here. God told them, the day you eat of it, you will die. And when, God, when Adam took that fruit, he took God for a liar and believed the devil instead. Who had told him, you will not surely die. There's unbelief mixed into the sin. There's ingratitude mixed into the sin. God had given him everything. You may eat of all the other trees, Adam. It's all been given to you. And how does Adam respond to all that he's been given? By supposing, by looking to the devil for good. And we could add different facets, different aspects of this sin that highlight just how egregious this first sin was. So Adam fell. He sinned. He disobeyed. And with that came consequences. Specifically, for the purposes of this sermon, man became depraved. So what we read, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise, 
Hence, our nature is become so corrupt. We became depraved. And you can look at that from two sides of the same coin. On the one side of the coin, the consequence of the fall of Adam was that we lost the image that God had given to man, that He had created man in. And we say that in light of those passages that we referenced earlier that talk about what it is to be recreated in the image of God, to have the image of God restored. And we said they point to being recreated in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Well, if that's restored at regeneration, the good and necessary consequence of that is that they were lost at the fall. Man lost that righteousness, that knowledge, that holiness. Yes, he remained a man. Yes, fallen man is still a rational, moral, and religious being. Yes, he still has all of the faculties God gave to him as a man. His mind, his will, his heart, his soul, his affections. That's all there. But the image itself was lost. That's one side of this coin. The other side of this coin is that man's nature became corrupt so that rather than merely just losing the image, instead, man was corrupted into the exact opposite of those things. And that comes out in the explanation that the canons of Dort give to this. We read earlier from Article 1 of Heads 3 and 4, which set before us man's original goodness. But now we read the rest of the article. But revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and abusing the freedom of his own will, he forfeited these excellent gifts. There's the loss of the image. Now, instead, just the opposite becomes true. He becomes corrupt, depraved, in that this is what took place. And on the contrary, he entailed of himself blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment. That's in direct contrast to be being created in knowledge with a, a spiritual understanding. And then it speaks of him becoming wicked and rebellious and obdurate in heart and will and impure, unholy in his affections. All of this is to say man became corrupt, depraved. And question and answer 8 tells us about that depravity. Answer eight is indeed we are telling us we can take the question as a, a statement that man is thus so corrupt that he's wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. So what we've seen here is that Adam's fall, his disobedience, is the source, the reason for our depravity, our sin, our misery. God is not to blame. He is not the author of sin. He is. The problem is not due to Him. It's on man. It's because man willfully threw away those excellent gifts that He had given to him. It was because man willfully plunged himself into sin and ruin. Man is to blame. Do you believe that? Or, 
are you thinking, but that was Adam. I did not eat that tree, that fruit from the tree. I can understand how he was responsible, but what does any of this have to do with me? It has everything to do with us, beloved. Exactly because Adam was our head and representative. He stood as our legal head, our organic head, the head of the entire human race. Adam was not functioning as a mere individual, but he was functioning on behalf of the whole human race. And that's the teaching of Scripture. That comes out in the chapter that we read, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, for example. For as in Adam, all die. We all died in Adam. This is explained more fully in Romans 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And must recognize it's not saying that, well, because every man's eventually going to sin at some point in his life, therefore he's going to die because of his own sin. But it's saying when Adam sinned, death passed upon all men, and that we all sinned in Adam. Because He was our head. Because He was our representative. As those who are His descendants. Man is always objecting to this doctrine of original sin that we are born sinful and corrupt on account of Adam's sin. Yet it's the truth of Scripture. And insofar as we might object, but, but I was not there. I had no say in the matter. We have to recognize God Himself appointed Adam as head. And it's not as though He gave us some lousy option, some foolish leader. He gave us the very best. When it comes to looking at the human race and looking at those who are mere men, there was no better option than Adam. He was perfect. So that if there had been a vote, if we had all been there at the very beginning and God told us, pick one man to represent you, the vote would have been unanimous. We would all have said, it's got to be Adam. He was our head and representative. And because that's true, when he fell into sin, that affected the whole human race. And that's the teaching of the very last part of question and answer seven. Hence, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. It's the teaching of the Canons of Dort. Article 2 now of Head 3 and 4. Man after the fall begat children in his own likeness. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence, all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent. Not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature. So all of this underscores the main point of this Lord's Day. Man is the one to blame for his sin and misery. We are responsible. We are accountable. Now before we move on and look by faith to the last Adam in whom our hope is found, it's worth asking the question, why would God let this happen? 
Why would He allow men to sin in this way? And the answer is exactly to make room for Jesus Christ so that God might reveal His goodness all the more clearly and all the more fully. You see, it was the plan all along that Adam would fall into sin. That does not mean God was responsible for the fall. Adam was responsible for the fall. He did it willingly. But God was still sovereign over it. It was still a part of the plan. A small part because the main part of the plan is to save His people through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He might reveal His goodness all the more clearly, all the more fully. Yes, God reveals His goodness in the creation itself and that the creation has been stamped with His goodness. He's communicated His goodness to the creation itself. But it's one thing, an amazing thing, but it's one thing for God to communicate His goodness. It's something far more amazing and far more wonderful when God communicates Himself. When He gives Himself to us. It's far greater when He holds out all that He is in Himself as the blessedness for His people. And God does that in Jesus Christ. For in Jesus Christ, we have God made flesh. We have the overflowing fountain of all goodness coming to live and to dwell among us. So that it's when we look at Christ, we see God's goodness in all of its beauty. Yes, we see it in creation, but we see it far more clearly, far more beautifully when we look at our Savior. So the plan all along was to get to Christ. And that comes out even in the passage that we read. The beginning, 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, this passage speaks of Christ as the second Adam, for example. It does so in verse 47. Verse 47. First man is of the earth early. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Second man. That does not mean though that He was just plan B. And that because plan A failed, therefore plan B has to be enacted. For the reality is that yes, He is the second Adam in that He came after the first. But He's also called the last Adam in that God's plan culminates in Him. And that's verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, or the final Adam, was made a quickening spirit. God's plan was to get to Him because of the far greater salvation He could accomplish. The first man is of the earth earthy, but a mere man. And therefore, He could only ever His obedience would only ever get him continued life with God in the garden. 
God's plan was to make way for the second Adam. Verse 46, Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The plan all along is to get to the spiritual. Because this spiritual one is the, the Lord of heaven. As verse as this passage teaches us. And as the one who's from heaven, he's able to bring us to heaven. He's able to give us heavenly life. So why did God allow Adam to fall into sin and to plunge the whole human race into ruin? Because the plan was to get to the last Adam. Now let's look at that last Adam for a little bit as we bring this sermon to a close. This passage tells us about our Savior Jesus Christ when it speaks of Him as the second Adam or the last Adam. Notice, He is called Adam because He is a real man. That is, He is a descendant of Adam through Seth, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, David, and finally, Mary. And therefore, he is rightly called an Adam. He's man. He took to himself our flesh and blood. That is, he assumed a true human nature so that he could suffer, so that he could die, and thereby bear the consequences for our sins. So he is Adam, but he's more than just a mere man because he's God at the same time. And that's evident from the fact that these verses call Him the Lord from heaven. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. It's referring to His divinity. It's reminding us that this second Adam was there in the beginning creating the first Adam, forming Him out of the dust of the ground. And now like the first Adam, so too the second, the last Adam, was tempted. The first Adam fell. He gave way. He gave in. The second Adam did not. When the devil came to him, tempting him in the wilderness, he said, no, get behind me, Satan. But he obeyed not just that one time or those three times. He obeyed God perfectly throughout his whole life, his entire life. He resisted the devil. He withstood temptation. He was obedient and obedient even unto the death of the cross. So that it's our Savior Jesus Christ who is the one then who fulfilled God's purpose from the beginning. God's purpose was that man, his chief end would be to glorify God. And Jesus Christ is the one who rightly knew God, his creator, heartily loved him and lived with him in eternal happiness to glorify and to praise him. That's Christ. He's the one who fulfills that original purpose. And he did that even at the cross. Even at the cross, he, he heartily loved him. He was glorifying Him even as He endured the very wrath of God for our sins so that the point is where the first Adam failed. 
the second Adam succeeded in a far greater and more wondrous way. And in doing that, He earned for us life. Adam's sin brought death. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam, all die. But the second Adam's obedience brought life. The rest of verse 22, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And thus, it is for us that we have now been given new life. Life from our Savior. Even as He's described here in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45, we read about the last Adam that He was made a quickening spirit. A quickening spirit. He was made a quickening spirit when He was raised again from the dead and given the Spirit as His own Spirit. Having been raised, And having been given the Spirit, He's now able to give us His own life and that He sends out the Spirit as His own who gives to us His own resurrection life. So that we who were dead in Adam are made alive again. And a part of that is that the image that was lost at the fall is now restored to us. And that we now have the image of our Savior. That too is a part of this passage. Verses 48 and 49. As is the earthy, that's talking about Adam. He's the one who is of the earth, earthy, born, made out of the dust. As is the earthy, Adam, such are they also that are earthy. And then verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, the first half of 48 and 49 is talking about the fact that Adam's sinful nature was communicated to us. It was handed down to us. We received His corrupt, depraved nature like an inheritance. But as those who are in Christ, as His elect people, we now have the image of our Savior given to us. That's the second half of those two verses. Verse 48, and as is the heavenly, that's Christ, such are they also that are heavenly, that is those who are in Christ, His elect people whom He represents. In verse 49, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So that as those who according to God's decree of election have now been joined to Christ so that we have a new head, we now have that righteousness, that knowledge, that holiness restored to us. And that too is a part of the canons adored. Heads 3 and 4, Article 1 talked about a man's original goodness created in righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. Article 1 also talked about what happened to man because of the fall. But then if we keep reading and come all the way to Article 11, we talk about the restoration of that image. Article 11 reads this way when it's talking about God's work of regeneration in our hearts. It says this, that He powerfully illuminates their minds with His Holy Spirit, that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. That is, we're given knowledge back. And it goes on, by the efficacy of the same regenerating Spirit pervades the inmost recesses of man's 
He opens and closes the He opens the closed and softens the hardened heart and circumcises that which was uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, which though heretofore dead, he quickens from being evil, disobedient, and refractory. He renders it good, obedient, and pliable. He actuates and strengthens it that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. It's saying we've had righteousness and holiness restored. And now consider for a moment what that means for you, child of God. With regard to God's purpose in creating man, God's purpose, the chief end of man is that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. The fall rendered man wholly incapable of making even the smallest beginning and achieving that chief end. But on account of the saving work of Christ, whereby He regenerates us, whereby He restores that image to us, we have once again been endowed, equipped with those excellent gifts so that we now can live to the glory of God and enjoy life with Him. Yes, only because of His saving work of grace within us, and only because He continues to work in us, the willing and the doing. But nevertheless, God has restored His people in such a way that they are now able to make a small beginning in rightly knowing Him, in heartily loving Him, and living with Him in eternal happiness to the glory and the praise of His name. And to deny that is to deny the possibility and therefore the necessity of a life of obedience which puts you outside of the Reformed confessions and outside of the Reformed tradition. Now it's one thing to have our theology straight. It's another to live this. So how does it go when the devil comes to you? Tempting you in the wilderness. Trying to draw you away from God. Do you follow the first Adam? Just give in? Or do you look to the last Adam for life, for strength, for the grace to withstand, to say, no, get thee behind me, Satan. So those who have been given new life, we have every motivation, every reason to glorify our God. May He grant us that grace while at the same time ever filling us with the hope of something even more, even greater, more wonderful. Because the reality is that the life that He has given to us is an incorruptible life. That's the language in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a life that will never die. And what is more, having 
earned life for us. Christ earned the right to bring us to be with Him. To live with Him in eternal happiness. Not back in the Garden of Eden, but in the new heavens and the new earth. So that as those who are fallen in Adam, we are not left looking back, wishing, wondering, if only Adam had withstood, if only he had obeyed in that hour of temptation. We do not need to wonder about that because we look ahead to the last Adam and the life we have in Him and the life we will have with Him forever in a place far more wonderful than that original paradise. Amen. Let us pray. Father in Heaven, be pleased to apply this Word to our hearts. Strengthen us and fill us with hope. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.